Hello and welcome to The Thought Experiment. I'm Scott Berger. And I'm Andrew Smith-Morland. And we're here to guide you through a series of hypothetical journeys through physics, mathematics, and philosophy. So first off this week, as we've told you last week, and no doubt if you've heard from other sources, we have a special guest, a notable special guest from the uh, top 25, is it, natural science podcast now, Robert? That's correct. Okay, yeah. Uh, Robert is the host of uh, the Big Bang and Creationism podcast, podcasts uh, specializing in arguments from science, talking about science and how it works, and um, discussing the workings of the universe, cosmology, astronomy, and things, but also discussing uh, fallacies behind, um, you know, crea- creationism in general and uh, things like that. So why he's on our show for this week is we're discussing a thought experiment as part of our series uh, through the history of thought experiments. We've just about hit the 1800s mark, and this marks the wonderful thought experiment of William Paley. Oh yes, we're very familiar with that man of nowadays. So the background behind this thought experiment arises from the watchmaker analogy, and this has to do with intelligent design. So intelligent design has been getting a lot of press recently, so we figured this issue could use someone who would be deemed, you know, a pretty knowledgeable person in the field of knowledge on intelligent design and creationism, Robert, from the Big Bang and Creationism podcast. We figure he knows what he's talking about, so, yeah. Relative to us, anyways. So the background of the thought experiment itself, Robert, can you tell us what the, uh, the watchmaker argument pretty much is about? Well, a watchmaker argument basically entails that if you find a watch on the ground and you can know that the watch came from a watchmaker, and the analogy is supposed to carry so that if you have anything that in nature appears complex, basically you can conclude that it was designed by some designer. So in, in the case of intelligent design, you'd say, look at this complex bacteria, look at this complex cell. This is a lot more complex than a watch. Ergo, we can conclude that it was designed by an intelligent designer. That is the the gist of the argument. So how exactly, all three of us are pretty much on one side of this debate, so we don't exactly have many varying viewpoints, and it's not very open to to alternative discussion from different viewpoints, obviously. So why is this fallacious reasoning? Uh, The reason the argument's fallacious is because it's kind of a circular reasoning issue. I mean, we know that a watch is designed by a human being, and... I guess there's also a fallacy of equivocation there. A watch is designed by a watchmaker. We, we know that already, so there's the circularity right there. But then to conclude that there's an earth and it was designed by a god, well, the, the jump there, there's no, there's no logical jump between those two. I mean, you have a watch and a watchmaker, and then you jump from the earth to a, 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 you know, a god. Well, at best you could say it was a creator of the earth, and they jump to you know, any specific god that they're advocating. Which is, you know, a, a jump right there. So there's no reason to jump between watch, watchmaker, earth, god. At best, you could say, here's an earth, we need an earth maker, or a rock, and a rock maker. But, again, the jump there is that it, the argument's circular. We already know a watch is designed by a human being. So there's your watchmaker. But we don't know that a rock is made by a human, you know, not a human being, but anything. And so we can't, we make, we can't make that conclusion that a rock is formed by a non-natural process just because we know a watch is made by a human being. So those are the two jumps, you know, circular logic and the fallacy of equivocation. You can't equivocate the two designs because one of them is designed and you know that, and the other one you don't know is designed and you're assuming it is based on your other argument. 
So, so a more modern interpretation of this is you're walking down the beach and you see this little glimmering reflection in the sand and you go in and you pick up out of the sand a fully formed watch and you notice you open it up and you see all the gears and all the things in there that are working seamlessly integrated and so beautifully put together that there's absolutely no way there's no possible way that this thing could have arisen by chance like the sands or the plants or the things around so we know that the watch must have had some artificial means of getting there and what you're saying is that they're falsely construing the Earth, or the universe, or whatever, as the watch, and therefore concluding that the universe is a watch, and that it needs a watchmaker. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's pretty much it. And also, when we see the watch in the sand, we already know that human beings have designed the watch. We can recognize human design. To suddenly jump from the fact that we can recognize human design to say that we can recognize any sort of design is a jump. We, we're assuming that we can recognize any sort of design. We can recognize alien design. We can recognize, you know, a god's design. Well, a god, all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants. Why would he design in such a way that we would recognize it? They're, they're making that assumption, and there's no reason. So there's, there's a huge jump between saying, here's what human beings have, and here's we know what human beings can produce, to, well... We know what any sort of being can produce, and any sort of being we posit will produce the way we recognize. So that there's a there's, an, there's another jump right there. Okay, so I'm gonna try playing. Well, oh wait, go ahead. Little, uh, something interesting that uh, Robert was actually touching on earlier when he was explaining exactly um, what the deal is with why this is inaccurate. It's talking. So I don't remember exactly what you're talking about. You're mentioning. Uh, uh, complex designs um, that it's you know unlikely for them to appear in nature. Maybe it was Scott who was talking about this. Uh, and unlikely for complex designs to appear in nature without some designer. Uh, there's actually a field of study on this uh, which would probably be fairly relevant to this discussion. It's called uh, complexity, and you know, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and basically, what uh, the field of complexity is is. Uh, a lot of people have found uh, this similar theme through various disciplines of science of um, basically a self-organizing principle um, that, uh, for an example, um, like if you have, take physics for example, so we have uh, molecules, that sort of thing. There are small complex agents like, you know, quarks and electrons, that sort of thing, organizing themselves into larger ordered complex structures like atoms and molecules, and the atoms organizing themselves into molecules, the molecules organizing themselves into larger uh, multi-celled beings, and even further, uh, we have these multi-celled beings, you know, uh, basically humans, uh, acting as individual agents and organizing themselves into larger complex structures such as societies and, and you know, economy, that sort of thing, um, or stars organizing themselves into galaxies. And basically, the study of complexity is figuring out why uh, things don't tend toward chaos or tend towards order, why there's this sort of phase state change at the ideal area where um, things simply become complex where there's some chaos, but there's also chaos in order. Um, like, have you ever heard of the game, uh, Light, Game of Life? Yeah, no, yeah, that's like the computer simulation game, basically. Uh, the board game? Yeah, uh, well, basically, it's got, it's just a few very simple rules. Um, uh, I, can't, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I think they are, if you have 
one uh, cell that's surrounded by two or more, um, then this cell uh, that's surrounded by two different cells, living cells, then it lives through the next turn. If it's surrounded by uh, one or less, then it dies. Uh, if it's surrounded by three or more, then it dies due to overpopulation. And those are basically the entire rules of the game of life. Very simple rules. But, at se but with those rules, the game of life is able to organize itself into these amazingly complex structures. You get you know, gliders that go across the screen. You get these really complex pulsing things that stay there for forever. Um, but it's just a few very simple guiding rules, and uh, the study of okay, yeah, 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 I I know what you're talking about yeah. now, the uh, the computer simulation yeah, exactly. thing. I thought you were talking about the the board no, game. No, 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 I'm talking about something first, different. But That's why I said computer simulation at the beginning there. <laughs> but yeah, basically, the study of complexity is figuring out why there seems to be an organizing principle. It's so so it's very uh, relevant to basically um, this whole argument of uh, of design. Yeah, exactly, because there seems because people are beginning to recognize that there is something, some basic organizing, underlying organizing principle to pretty much everything uh, that spans every single field of science. And uh, most people are trying to figure out, are noticing that it is an innate, basically, structure to the universe, uh, innate quality to existence. Um, and So could some people construe that that fundamental basis of uh, culturism, I want to kind of say, the uh, the formulation of atoms into cells, into multicellular organisms, this whole gradients of scale building up and building up uh, based off of these simple little rules or whatever, you know, just in the computer simulation itself, why couldn't those rules, say on a universal scale, uh, be given by God? Yeah, and that's, the, that's the, the difficult part, because what they're trying to do, I mean, uh, a lot, naturally, a lot of the people working on this are atheists, of course, and um, are attempting to figure out why this is happening, but not touching on any theological implications. Uh, some of the earliest research was actually done in uh, neural networks and autocatalytic sets. People would basically find that there's a sweet spot for the certain amount of connections any individual agent can have with its surrounding. For, in, for instance, in an autocatalytic set, which is basically we're dealing with chemistry here, if you have um, catalyst A, which is a very weak catalyst that acts on catalyst B, uh, the two combine and catalyst B becomes acts on catalyst C, the two combine and keep on going. And as each catalyst interacts with the next one, uh, that keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger, um, up until you get catalyst Z, which interacts with catalyst A. Now, by the time you've gotten there, the, cataly the catalysts are extremely strong, and that strength is uh, transferred down to catalyst A, and you basically have this continuing uh, buildup of uh, potency in the catalysts uh, until you finally have basically you're able to get uh, a sufficiently complex reaction as to have uh, basically life or a complex organism. Uh, this is basically trying to work with new theories of how that you know primordial soup got started. Uh, it's and it seems it's perfectly plausible. Or, for instance, in neural networks, where if you have Neuron. Um, one, uh, I don't remember what they're called, whatever is in your brain, uh, neuron. When you have one neuron firing with only two connections to other ones, 
it's almost like this, this sweet spot. As long as it, this neuron only has two connections with other neurons, then you're able to get, uh, in computer simulations anyways, this amazingly structured yet active and ever-changing sort of emergent behavior um, in your computer simulation. And people have noticed it's sort of a, um, it's almost a phase state change, as I said this earlier. Uh, if you have just less of this sweet spot amount of connections in any, um, in any uh, complex system, then all you end up with is just basically, you know, this ordered, completely static uh, system. Nothing happens, it's very crystalline. But if you have a little bit more than this sweet spot, then everything just blasts off into chaos and nothing ever happens or change. But if, you, if you're right at this phase state change, then things never quite settle down in being ordered, but then never quite manage to blast off into chaos. It's just the swirling area of uncertainty. And people are able to find this phase state change in simulations, and they're trying to figure out exactly why this seems to happen in the universe. Because it doesn't seem to be, it's an inherent, it's almost an inherent property of matter, but nobody knows why. So, if you were to sum up that 20-minute ramble in two <laughs> sentences, how would you do so? Matter has an inherent property to organize itself. Okay, one sentence. And it has absolutely no supernatural means. <laughs> Okay, so moving on from that, um, getting back with the uh, design. I mean, that was you know that had to do with design, but uh, not in the the sort of context I was I was aiming for, which I is good. Me. But um, okay, well, well, <laughs> that's fine. But a lot of arguments seem to revolve around very key, notable arguments that we've encountered before, the three of us one of which includes what's called the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, this comes up as the anthropic principle, but it, it falls under an umbrella of different definitions that uh, the intelligent design movement uses. And they argue that the universe is finely tuned for us to be here because, uh, you know, if, if gravity was off by just a little bit or if uh, the Earth was 5% closer to the sun, we wouldn't be here for X reasons or, or what have you. So they, they claim that the universe is specifically tailored for us to be here, and that this is evidence to Robert's claim that there was none previous, that the universe is in fact a watch, quote-unquote, and that these fundamental principles of design, these key constituents that we need in order to be here, are the gears that allow us to be here in the watch. So the the makeup of the watch itself is the the fact that the universe quote unquote was designed by whatever theological argument we want to pull it from. So how would you guys well, respond to that? A lot of the main counter that I've seen a lot of people use and unfortunately it's the only one I can think to use of, but I still think it's a little I'm uncomfortable with it. But basically it's like, you know, if it wasn't tailored for us we wouldn't really be here to wonder about it now, would we? <laughs> it's possible that there's a whole bunch of other universes that aren't tailored for us, and, well, guess what? We don't exist in them, so who cares? The only reason the reason that uh, this universe seems to be tailored for us is because we happen to be here. 
Robert, do you have a comment on there? or? No, I mean, that's that's exactly the argument I think anyone should really use when dealing with that claim because the argument they're using is based on the... They're making the assumption, and they're trying to prove their assumption. So it's, it's again, circular. They're assuming the universe was designed in such a way that we could exist, and the fact that we exist backs up their assumption, which is also their premise, I mean, which is also their conclusion. They conclude we were designed, and their assumption is that we were designed to fit in the universe, and because we do fit in the universe, therefore we were designed. Well, that was what they started with. So the argument's not a very good one to begin with. So, you know, people seem to trip into that because they approach it logically the wrong way. They seem to think... Well, that seems to be a logical means of going about making an argument, but really, they're starting with their conclusion and they're ending with their conclusion, so they really have gone nowhere in demonstrating that a designer is required for the universe. And post hoc rationalization is pretty much where, like, the people advocating for intelligent design are saying, well, given the fact that we've evolved on this planet and we've adapted ourselves to the planet, it's sort of saying, like, oh, well, the planet was perfectly designed for us to be here. Which doesn't make any sense, considering we altered ourselves for the planet. So creationists are always dropping number arguments saying, oh, well, uh, oh, who's, who's the um, flagellum dude? Behe? Yeah, Michael Behe always uses the, the argument from his flagellum that I like to call the argument from flagellum, where he says the, uh, the bacterial flagellum is so complex and so well-designed, it could only have had a designer, a capital D designer, mind you, that could have been behind it, because there's absolutely no way it would have worked without any of those parts to be there in the first place. You know, what good is half a wing, they always say. So, how, Robert or Andrew, how could these bacteria have gotten these little propellers on the end that they often say can spin at 10,000 RPMs or things that rival Cuisinart's, uh, how... How exactly could they get those out of nowhere, out of thin air, out of just for no reason, just acquiring the sperm, acquiring its tail out of nowhere, and then just using that for its advantage? Well, the the bacterial flagellum has been demonstrated, the argument that Behe proposes about the bacterial flagellum has been demonstrated to be false for quite a while now. Uh, There's a video circulating on YouTube done by Ken Miller where he goes through the evolution of the of the bacteria flagellum, namely that I believe it was the type three secretory system. I don't know exactly what that is, but <laughs> but that the bacteria flagellum has pretty much the same parts as this type three secretory system, except for I believe it was just the very tip of the flagellum. So it's got all the motor parts to it. I mean, the main argu- main problem with Behe's argument is that he he assumes, for the sake of his argument, that the that the functions of these parts in these organisms always have the same function throughout all the, you know, their existence. When, in fact, there's no reason to assume that, and if you don't assume that, his argument pretty much falls apart. So, if you, if you assume first that the only function of this flagellum is going to be motor movement, then the argument is, of course, going to be in Behe's favor. However, there's no reason to assume that. If you make the, you know, the jump, I guess, that, well... Functions don't always have to be the same, and of course it's not a jump, they don't have to be the same, then you've, there's no problem. I mean, this could have come from the Type 3 secretory system, and then, you know, once it got this extra part, it could use it for motor transportation, and there we get the bacteria flagellum. It takes on different roles. 
I mean, there are all sorts of examples about this in the history of evolution. If you look at the immune system, for example, if you take out certain parts of the human immune system, it won't work. Okay, it won't work in, in humans, or it might not work just as well in humans, but it works in other creatures. Some creatures are missing certain parts of this cascade of the immune system, because the immune system kind of, one thing sets another thing off, sets another thing off. Well, if you remove one of them, obviously they aren't going to work in that cascade. However, if you look in other creatures, they're missing certain parts of the human one. However, it still works in them. It might not work as efficiently as the human one, but it still works. And so, again, if you change the function, if you can you know, accept the fact that functions of an organism's parts can change, then there's really no problem, and the whole irreducibly complex, the irreducible complexity just kind of goes away. There's really no problem there. So, a big quandary in science... And this will lead us into our final talking point after this. Uh, a big quandary in science comes from inflationary cosmology, a, a pretty well-respected branch of science that's been so for for 70-plus years or so, or however long it's been around. Now, this, comes, this harks back to the term the Big Bang. Now, scientists don't technically like to use the term the Big Bang. They prefer complex terms like inflationary cosmology or things with lots of syllables. So in inflationary cosmology, we know that the universe is expanding, and if we run that backwards, we see a big compression, uh, like kind of a reversed Big Bang, sort of. And if you compress it down far enough, we know that space and time are accordance with one another, that they are almost the same thing, if not mutually connected, that if you run space down to an infinitesimal point, to a singularity, that the laws of physics break down time becomes zero, things don't make any sense, and we need new laws of physics to describe it. One of the biggest arguments from design that I've encountered and thoroughly debunked myself, but I want to see how you guys respond to it, is where did that first singularity come from? Uh, well, first of all, the singularity... Singularity really can't come from anything. A singularity is just a mathematical construct to represent something that we don't quite understand. Um, as for where it came from, at the moment, we don't know. I mean, of course, there's a lot more in terms of where uh, the you know in terms of before the universe, in terms of uh, inflationary cosmology. You know, according to that, our universe is just an expanding bubble of normal matter, which is in a decaying false vacuum. Uh, and decaying and ever-expanding false vacuum, which arises from the interaction of energy fields from Higgs particles. But um, that still get, brings us back to, you know, where did all the original, all those other original things come from? Um, and the answer is that we don't know, uh, but that it is entirely possible for all of existence, everything that we know, to have come from simply nothing. Uh, a lot of the, the main argument that a lot of creationists try to use this uh, scenario is, well, the existence of the universe defies the, or according to a lot of scientific explanations, defies the, uh, I can't remember which, first law of thermodynamics, matter can't be created or destroyed. Yeah, first law. Yeah, because um, they say, well, science says the universe came from nothing, and obviously energy has to be conserved, uh, so where did all this energy come from if it came from nothing? Um, and the main argument there is basically that it is actually entirely possible for all that we know to have come from nothing and for energy to be, remain conserved. Uh, the explanation is fairly long, 
I think that I've actually gone through before in one of our earlier episodes. Um, I'll try and condense it here. Uh, but basically, um, all potential energy uh, between every single object is stored in gravitational fields between each object. Uh, gravitational fields basically permeate the entire universe, so they have a potentially inf infinite energy storage capacity. Um, also, when a gra gravitational field is created, uh, the resulting the result is that energy is released. Therefore, the numerical sign that we assign to the energy storage of a, of a gravitational field is negative, as long as we make all the other other energy in the universe positive. Therefore, the energy stored in gravitational fields counters uh, all the rest of the energy in the universe, bringing the total energy of the universe to zero. Therefore, it must have come from nothing. How, we don't know, but it's possible. Uh, I guess I guess what I'd add on to that is we cannot really conclude there is even a singularity. What people are doing is they're running classical mechanics back into an era when it doesn't even apply. They're trying to move general relativity back to a realm in which we don't know. The mathematics sort of break down for general relativity. And we need to rely on a more quantum explanation for what occurs during the very first you know, plonk second of of the, the universe's existence. We really don't know what happened if we try to just apply general relativity or or just classical mechanics because gravity behaves in such a fundamentally different way on the very minutest scales in the universe. So we need we really need a theory of quantum gravity to dis to describe what would occur during this time. And our theories of quantum gravity, which we we're working on right now, but we do have some preliminary ideas. There, for instance, there's loop quantum gravity, there's string theory, there's a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, quantum gravitational explanations for gravity. But if we look at what some of these have to say in terms of cosmology, we find that there really is kind of an answer as to what the origin of the universe would be, and it springs up from these quantum quantum gravitational theories. For instance, in loop quantum gravity, uh, one of the ideas seems to be that space can only condense to a certain point. And that would be about a Planck length, which is you know a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a meter or so. So if you condense it down to this size, it cannot go any smaller than this. And so what we get is actually the energy that's kind of going into it shrinking has it repel out into what the Big Bang that we saw. And so that could just be one explanation of what causes Big Bang. And again, you kind of go back to, well, what caused that, what caused that? And it very well could be infinite. I mean, there's no reason to conclude... That just because we come to a singularity means that was the very beginning of time ever. It just means, well, people are kind of misconstruing it and saying, well, there's a singularity, that's the beginning of time, there was no time prior to that. Well, without our explanation of the quantum gravity, who's to, who, <clears throat> who's to say there was no time before that? Who's to say that's the very beginning of time? That might be the beginning of what we can understand currently, but, you know, again, inflationary, inflationary theory, like what you were saying, I believe is chaotic inflation, kind of gives us this picture of we're just a one bubble universe and a bunch of bubble universes, and that this has been going on for eternity. Uh, prior to a few years ago, they didn't really see how that could have gone back infinitely in the past, but there are now ways to make inflation work infinitely in the past. So the universe could have existed for eternity, pretty much. And, yeah, I'm familiar with the with the argument of gravitational energy is seen as negative compared to the rest of the energy in the universe, and we could kind of cancel that out, but we don't really know if gravitational energy perfectly cancels out the other positive energy in the universe. So, I mean, that could be an argument, but it, it might not work. And so, 
you know, maybe it maybe it's an argument, maybe it's not. But the main thing I think to remember is that there are plenty of ways of describing the beginning of the universe and prior to the beginning of the singularity, I guess, as we see it in our universe. And all we need is a theory of quantum gravity. And once we get that and apply it to cosmology, I mean, we're already applying these preliminary ideas about quantum gravity to cosmology. And, and already we're coming up with ideas on how the universe could have formed and how it could have evolved from this what we appear, what appears as a singularity state, but really isn't a singularity because quantum mechanics does not allow for this kind of universe with no size. It has to be of a finite size. So that's that's pretty much the main argument against the first cause argument is that well they don't really they haven't really kept up with the science for the past thirty years or so because inflation has changed since then and we've kind of gotten a li little bit further than just Big Bang singularity. Spinning dot of dust exploded <laughs> in space to create the universe sort of mentality. So this pretty well transitions into my final question from creationists, I, I guess I should put it, uh, that the one I myself have not been able to answer, and I was just reading uh, Lawrence Krauss's book uh, about uh, dark matter and dark energy, and he himself couldn't answer this in his book that I remember reading, was that the cosmological constant back when Einstein deemed it as his worst mistake that he'd ever made uh, is basically the constant that controls uh, the inflation of the universe. As we've been talking about, space is expanding, and it's expanding very, very fast. That space itself has energy in itself, if that makes any sense, um, that attributes to the expansion of itself. So this constant that scientists have unearthed, have uncovered, uh, you can read more about it on Google... Uh, one of the biggest arguments from intelligent design and uh, fine-tuning, watchmaker argument, whatever you want to call it these days, the evolution of creation, you, want, you should say, is that this cosmological constant is so finely tuned that it is finely tuned to a degree of something along the order of 43 magnitudes of fine-tuning. If it had been off by a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth ad infinitum percent that nothing would be here. That the universe would either expand too fast in the after the Big Bang and no matter would be able to coalesce into stars to create the first elements or whatever, or it would collapse too fast in a sense where we would have no time for stars to form, no time for galaxies or us to form. So if such a number, even if it's just one number, had to be finely tuned to within 43 magnitudes of accuracy, and changing one of those numbers were to lead to fatal errors across the board, how would you reconcile that in a sort of non-design universe? Uh, I think that's basically the uh, anthropological argument yet again. I mean, I, I don't want to, like, try and answer this question that some guy who's obviously a lot smarter than me couldn't but I, it seems to me basically just we got the same argument over again. If if the number had been off, then we wouldn't really be here to wonder about it. So it's a good thing it was there. I mean that that's the perfect explanation. I'd say is again, it's the anthropic principle being applied. If it wasn't the way it was, then we wouldn't be here today. I mean, you can look at it like this. They're, they're taking something that we find useful after the fact and looking at the probability of it occurring again. Well, that's like saying, you know, I take a dice and I roll it a billion times, and I look at the probability of the string of numbers I just got. 
I say, wow, look at those those numbers. The odds are one in a billion, 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 billion that I would have gotten those that exact string of numbers. So that's the odds of getting it again. But putting odds on getting something the first time, it doesn't really make any sense. You know, the odds of getting the you know this this fine tune factor again would be one in a billion, 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 billion. But we don't have to get it again. It just was the way it was. It happened once, and it worked out the way it did. Well, that's the same thing with the rolling of the dice. I roll the dice. I don't really check and see if I'm getting this certain thing the first time. If I look back on it and I say, wow, what are the odds of the thing I just rolled? Well, the odds are going to be astronomical if you keep rolling it, and the odds are going to keep getting greater and greater and greater the more you roll a dice. So you can you can always create these kind of big numbers and say, look, look at this. This is really hard. I don't see how this could have formed by chance. Therefore, it was designed. Well, if you approach it the first time, you cannot put a probability on this thing happening again that's already happened. You can't put the probability on having the first time if it already happened. So putting probability in you know, an argument from big numbers, I like to call it, it really doesn't do anything for the case of a designer. It's just saying, wow, this thing was really complex. You know, instead of calculating the odds of it happening again, we'll say, what are the odds of this happening ever? And it's really low, therefore, you know, it was designed. Well, you can't put odds on something like that the first time around because there's you know, there's a, there's an infinite amount of different ways it could have formed, so obviously every every kind of formation would be one out of infinity. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And just because it's useful for us, just because this thing happened to be around and we exist because of it, that we find we can put a probability on it, when it really is not useful to put a probability on this thing the first time it happens. Sort of like saying that people arising on earth the chance of that happening is so low like one with a thousand zeros after it or something like that that would uh would pretty much be the yeah, same I mean, lines anything, of you thinking. look at the first time you're like wow what are the odds i would have gotten the job at this specific place at this specific time well if i look back and do it again well the odds of me getting the exact same thing i just got would be very low but I just got it now, and you can't put odds on that kind of stuff. It doesn't make any sense to put odds on that sort of thing because there's no other things with which to compare it to. I mean, if you do it once, then you have something to compare it to and say what are the exact parameters I have to get to, to get it again. But the first time, there's no kind of limit on what you can do, and you just get what, what happens. So that's, that's what happened with the universe is we got what came out of the universe, and then to put probability on it, we'd say, well, what's the probability of this happening again? But we don't care because it's already happened, so the argument's kind of a moot point. Okay, I think that was a, a good place to leave off on. Uh, Robert, I'd like to thank you for uh, being a special guest on our show. My pleasure. And Andrew, I'd like to wish you a warm welcome back to the Thought Experiment. Yeah, it's great to be back. Well, that's all we have time for for this week, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for joining us on the Thought Experiment.